Hi, welcome back to another episode of Real World Serverless, a podcast where I speak with real world practitioners and get their stories from the trenches. Today, I'm really excited to welcome Ben Cahill from iRobot onto the show. Hi, Ben. Good to see you again. Hi. Happy to be here. So, you know, you and iRobot are almost, I like to say, the, the poster child for Lambda. You guys have been doing really hardcore stuff on serverless and Lambda for quite a long while now and doing some really high throughput as well. So maybe as, you know, let's get started by just talking about what you've been doing at iRobot and uh, uh, how did iRobot go down this road of uh, serverless? Yeah, so I joined iRobot in 2015. Um before we, while we were in the process of launching our first connected Roomba, the Roomba 980. And so while iRobot's been around since 1990, um, a scaled out uh, connected robot was not something we had done before. You know, we'd done networked robots on a smaller scale. Our Roomba business, obviously in 2015, was already big, selling millions of robots a year. And so we didn't have a background in cloud computing. Um, and I didn't really have a background in cloud computing. I was coming from grad school where I'd worked on cloud robotics, where, you know, sort of what can robotics do while leveraging the cloud. But as a grad student, uh, you know, you're not necessarily using giant fleets of robots or things. You're doing, you know, sort of more theoretical proof of concept stuff. And so we had chosen, iRobot had chosen uh, early in the project for the connected Roomba, uh, a full solution IoT cloud provider. And uh, the purpose of that was that they, you know, it was turnkey. We didn't actually have to, to build it. It was a platform. It handled authentication. It handled delivery of firmware updates. It handled, it had a scripting platform on top, all of these things. Um, but they'd really built it for industrial IoT, which allows, you know, there's a lot more data, there's a lot fewer devices, and your control often doesn't need to be real time, where all of those are kind of flipped in consumer IoT. And so even before launch, we were aware that that platform wasn't going to scale to Roomba volumes. Um, one of my first tasks at iRobot was to build some scale testing uh, to knock the system over to prove to them that uh, they weren't going to scale to the volumes that they had claimed. Uh, which is fun. I got to set some things on fire. Um, but uh, so we knew even before launch that we wanted to shift off of them. And two things were involved in there. You want your IoT connectivity layer, which deals with authentication and traffic from the robots. And then we wanted to own the application that we that was behind that, that handled all of the business logic and all the things that, that went into that. And we wanted that because by 2015, we had realized that being a part of the smart home was an integral part of our strategy. So we wanted to control more of our destiny in the cloud application there. And so we ended up selecting AWS IoT Core as our IoT connectivity layer. And then we knew we wanted to build an application behind that on AWS. And again, you know, we had people in at iRobot who had previously built, you know, scalable systems, um, but not a lot and not at iRobot. And so, you know, we sort of looked at the selection of services on uh, AWS. IoT Core is, of course, completely serverless. There are no knobs to tune there. And Lambda was new, API Gateway was new, DynamoDB had been around for a while, um, S3, SQS, SNS, all of these pieces were there, and none of them required running servers. And we said, 
well, we think we can probably build this without actually having to learn um, that step to build auto-scaling uh, server-based systems. And then we don't have to go through all of that learning as it scales up very rapidly to the size of the Roomba fleet. And so we invested in that and it's been very successful and we still don't have any uh, containers or VMs uh, handling transactional traffic uh, from our connected robots and apps. There's certainly some you know, container-based jobs, AWS batch, things like that, more on the analytics side, but in the OLTP side of our application, it's still fully, fully serverless. So I remember you know, Lambda uh, and API Gateway in those you know, early days, the 2015, it was a very different, I guess, offering and capabilities compared to what we have today. Yes. So as an early adopter, what were some of the biggest challenges and the problems that you guys ran into in those early days? Well, I think none of us in the serverless community really had any idea what we were doing back in 2015. Um, you know, this was back when the serverless framework was brand new and still called JAWS. And uh, when we looked at all the things that we needed to do, um, we didn't see any deployment framework that fully met our needs. And so we decided to roll our own, which is uh, always a last resort when you're serverless. You want to buy something rather than build something if you possibly can. But uh, it was the right decision at the time. And so that locked us into sort of tooling built around a specific architecture that we still have. Um, and so, you know, a significant double digit percentage of our lines of code when we shipped our application at first was in the tooling that we that we had built. Um, it's not really true anymore, but uh, it gives an idea of the the amount of work going into both just building the tooling, but also sort of predicting and establishing best practices. Um, and I think a lot of the decisions we made early on there um, were not ones we would make again if we were building brand new and isn't really what we're making when we're building new systems outside of outside of that. Yeah, I remember using uh, JAWS, at least trying to use JAWS uh, in those, uh, back in those days. Uh, it just didn't work the first time I tried it. It just didn't work out of the box. So I ended up having to build some kind of, you know, couple together a bunch of different scripts uh, and the cloud formation to get it to work and have some kind of deployment framework myself as well. Uh, thankfully, you know, nowadays uh, the tooling has got so much better. Uh, nowadays probably have a different option, different problem where we have too many different options. Uh, and again, not clear uh, I guess consensus in the community on how to choose which one. <laughs> yes. Um, so you guys been so I guess fast forward a few years uh, nowadays. You guys are running Lambda at a pretty massive uh, massive scale. Are you able to talk about any of the sort of numbers or peak throughput? Uh, what sort of peak concurrency you're running at? Yeah, I mean we talk. You know, last time I checked, which was like a year ago, um, our traffic is spiky. Our Roombas are scheduled, and so 10 a.m. Eastern time every day is there's a massive inrush of traffic as, uh, for whatever reason, the highest volume of scheduled robots during a 24-hour period. It's um, interesting to see because that's people on the East Coast who are scheduling it at 10 a.m., but people in Europe who are scheduling it much later. Um, and that just happens to be the confluence. And then, you know, our weekends are busier than our uh, than our weekdays. It's very spiky, 
but we don't really look at the spikes for volume of traffic. I think if you average it out across everything, um, across you know an entire week, um, it's in the hundreds of requests per second because our robots, and it's that's across all the lambdas kind of thing that we that we estimate for. It's uh, yeah, and that's because robots are sort of they're not very chatty when they're out of outside of a mission because there's not much going on with them. They're sitting on the dock waiting for something to happen, reporting that they're still there. During those times, those robots are are not very chatty. And then there's these big inrushes, big spikes in volume when robots are starting scheduled missions. That's actually quite funny that uh, there's some correlation between everyone who owns the iRobot, uh, well, a Roomba, they're all kind of, I guess there's like a particular time, the day when everyone seems to be running their iRobot uh, uh, robots uh, in their homes at the same time. In in the app, when you schedule it, it's uh, it lets you schedule for like the hour, the half hour or whatever. So we're guiding people into um, into those schedules. Right, I see. Okay, so okay, that makes sense, and also I guess it makes sense for them to run probably more often uh, on certain days of the week as well. Um, so in that case, when you have a sudden spike uh, in traffic, do you ever run into any of the sort of service limits that Lambda has in terms of the sort of initial burst capacity limits uh, in your region, or is that just not a problem because uh, robots will just retry if they ever get throttled? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of traffic. Um, that doesn't completely exit uh, the, um, like a lot of those, so the request volume from our lambdas is lower than the request volume, like the, the message volume into AWS IoT. Um, because basically everywhere where messages are coming in uh, to AWS IoT, they're ending up batched into a Lambda function. So, for example, we have an Elasticsearch cluster that indexes the device shadows in AWS IoT. And there's a big Kinesis stream that listens to the very large volume of requests that go into IoT through the shadow. And then, of course, we're pulling out large batches of uh, requests out of that Kinesis stream. Uh, So I think uh, there's few places where the lambdas really need to scale up very quickly because of especially Kinesis, which allows it to back up a little bit, um, but also the batching in general. And uh, and then for AWS IoT, they have a pretty good understanding of our traffic. Um, and so we don't see a lot of throttles off of there. You know, for us, a, a big event is Christmas morning. You know, all the people who have bought robots from Black Friday until Christmas open them in about a four-hour window on Christmas morning. And so there's this giant inrush of traffic there, but we work with our account team and the AWS IoT team to let them know this is what our expected volumes are um, and so that that can all be pre-warmed for us. And so I think you know with uh, Lambda, a lot of that now is self-service with provision capacity um, and uh, provision capacity, right? Not the uh, reserve concurrency, yeah. And so you can self-service that for Lambda if you know what your traffic patterns look like, which is something that we we do. But most of that happens within AWS IoT for us. 
Yeah, it's funny that moment there when the, even an expert like yourself have to double check yourself. Uh, am I talking about reserve concurrency or provision concurrency? The naming just so confused. Well, the naming is 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 weird, right? Reserved is like I'm reserving concurrency, isn't that? Is it is concurrency going to be there? No, it's only if I've provisioned it will it be there. Yeah. That is, I, oh my God, it's the the naming just gets me so uh, so twisted. Uh, so, so in, are you running everything in one single region, or do you also have a multi-region setup as well? Yeah, we're mostly in US East 1. Um, and that's uh, primarily because most of the things that our users are doing are not seeing the latency. They're talking, like if you're at home on the same Wi-Fi network as your robot, the app talks directly to it. And uh, therefore, you don't really see latency there. Um, so we're not as latency sensitive as other applications might be. And so we've chosen a single region strategies. Same for uh, failover is that our um, the current functionality that we have um, isn't uh, isn't primarily you know it's not mission critical to our users' lives yet. Um, and the robot will still clean. You know if you set a schedule, um, the robot will clean on that schedule even if the cloud is out, even if your Wi-Fi is out. And you can always push the clean button. Same with that direct connection that you can make. Um, and so today, um, those failover scenarios and those latency scenarios aren't high enough priority uh, in terms of our customer needs um, to make the complexity worth it. Uh, but as as our feature set grows, as the as the our connections in the smart home grow and uh, more of uh, the value that we see of having a connected robot in the home uh, materializes. I think some of those things may change. So you mentioned earlier about the whole pre-skate uh, pre-warming for uh, IoT core itself. I remember doing the same thing with uh, you know, uh, load balancers in the past, uh, where when you have a new product launch, you know the traffic is going to be very spiky. Um, does the IoT core itself, I guess, uh, it also just auto scales, right? It's just that you've got a spike coming in. So, yeah. Okay, that's why you need. To, okay, that's why you need to uh, ask them to pre-warm. Well, and it's it's good. I mean, this is not something. You know, Christmas we need to talk with them about. You know, we're getting a very large influx of robots in a in a relatively short amount of time, um, and and we want all of that to go well. And so we we talk with them about that. But it's not. Um, you know it. It's not something that we have to normally talk about them with for other kinds of spikes. Uh, Prime Day, for example, um, that just works. So they they scale up and they're pretty good about accepting messages, and even if the delivery, you know, uh, needs some scale up before that happens. Have you ever run into issues around the delivery um, in terms of duplicated messages being delivered from IoT to Kinesis? And there's some problem that I've experienced with a few of these async event sources that push messages to Kinesis that uh, when you pick them up from Lambda, sometimes you just get duplicates. I think with CloudWatches, that's quite one, that's quite a common one I see uh, that you end up having to write some code around that. What about with IoT code? Do you, is that something that you guys have to deal with? Um, we design all of the messages that come from the robot to be idempotent. So uh, um, they're all quas zero. Uh, so originally with IoT, you paid for the ACK message that was sent back down to the robot in quas one. Um, and 
when you have lots of robots and lots of traffic, uh, that cost can add up. So all the traffic currently from the robots is cost zero. And so duplicate messages can end up being sent. So everything we sort of design around being item potent updates to shadow that we index, for example, that's just fine for there to be duplicates. Records that come from, you know, at the end of a cleaning mission, a robot uploads a little report of it that goes through IoT into a DynamoDB table. That ID is stable. So even if that gets updated later, that's fine. Okay, that's pretty cool. Um, so one of the things that I get asked a lot is uh, just what event source I should use as a queue. There's so many different options. Uh, I, I guess given the sort of volume of messages that are dealing with uh, Kinesis, must have worked out a lot cheaper than if you had used, say, uh, EventBridge or SQS or SNS, which are which have which are volume. Those services are so much more expensive compared to Kinesis. It's something that we haven't had to look too much at yet. Um, we chose Kinesis because the SQS integration, you know, didn't exist for a very long time. We built a custom resource to to do the integration, but we only used it on lower volume things. All the very high volume stuff goes through Kinesis. Part of the value of Kinesis is that it's a buffer, right? That if whatever's downstream is broken, your Kinesis stream will just back up. And this happens for us because that Elasticsearch cluster that I mentioned, that falls over occasionally, which for us is fine because there's no time critical things that query that cluster. So it's totally fine. And it fills back up with current shadow data all the time. So once you just stand up the cluster again, uh, it, gets, it gets filled pretty quickly. So our requirements around it aren't, aren't very strong. And so when that happens, the Lambda that fills that Elasticsearch just starts failing and the Kinesis team just starts backing up. And then once the cluster is back up, the Lambda starts working and the Kinesis stream empties out. And you don't have to do anything. And that's not true with SQS today, right? With SQS, you're reading from it and all of a sudden your downstream goes down and your DLQ is just gonna fill up with all the, all the records as they, uh, as they fail enough times. And then you got to redrive all those messages, or you got to figure out, oh, something's failing. I got to turn off my Lambda, set the concurrency to zero, and wait for it to come back. And to test it's coming back, I got to turn that concurrency back up a little bit. Um, so you got to do a bunch of things that are a lot of work and undifferentiated heavy lifting. And this is one of the uh, one of the reasons that Lambda or AWS in general needs to build sort of a circuit breaking service, right? Your ability to do these things requires a very stateful process. You gotta maintain, oh, there's some downstream health that I'm paying attention to and I'm marking it, you know, it's not just if one call fails, um, it's if several calls fails, you know, in a, in a given timeline. And sure, I could make a CloudWatch alarm for it and do all these things, but then I need to store the state of that somewhere. And then I need to use that state to drive a change in Lambda concurrency. And then I need to occasionally check on it to see if it's see if it's better. Because um, if I keep the concurrency at zero, I'll never get any more information about whether the downstream is is healthy again. And so that feels you know it's something that a customer can build, but is very much undifferentiated heavy lifting. And I think it's sorely missing. It's something that you know is built into container systems, you know, Istio and Envoy have features that help with this. And in the serverless world, we're just completely without it. 
Yeah, I couldn't agree more with that. Um, something that we definitely are sorely missing. Um, I think we had that conversation with uh, Paul Johnston and the Jeremy Daly as well. Uh, literally, we had about four or five different ways of implementing you know, basically the same thing. Uh, whereas it would be so much better if uh, AWS just provided. I think that brings us nicely to... Actually, maybe before we move on to um, what I want to talk about in terms of some of the missing features in the serverless offering from AWS right now, um, one last thing I want to touch on is um, with Kinesis, one of the missing pieces there is the auto-scaling, which I've had to build a, several, you know, a couple of times myself. Uh, are you guys doing anything with auto-scaling or do you just say, you know, no, screw this, we're just going to run at a certain shard, number of shards and just you know, be done with that? Yeah, I think... I mean, our traffic is pretty predictable. And so we don't, you know, the resharding happens fairly rarely. In fact, I think one Christmas, the literal only operations work that we need to do was upshard one of our Kinesis streams. And so if that process had been automated, it only happens every couple of months. But if it had been automated, that Christmas day operations for that massive influx of traffic, which is like, you know, 20 x-ish our normal daily traffic uh, would have been completely hands-off keyboard. Now, auto scaling for Kinesis is great, but that it implies that I still have to manage shards, right? And so, what I really want is just that I can shove data into Kinesis, and I still have the same guarantee, which is for any partition key, the messages are ordered. Um, but today, you have a notion of you know multiple partition keys are on the same shard and they'll all be ordered relative to each other. But I'm fine giving that up in exchange for I don't have to manage shards. And that's, I think, the, the bigger serverless dream. Absolutely. If you can have the same pricing model and scaling model that uh, Firehose gives you with just normal Kinesis data streams, that would be amazing. Yeah, and so that I guess that brings us back onto that question I was going to ask you just now is uh, what do you think are some of the most pressing I guess uh, missing features that we have with the serverless offerings on AWS right now? You touch on the uh, the lack of some kind of a auto scaled uh, kinesis, uh, but also the lack of uh, circuit breakers. Anything else that comes to mind? So we talk a lot about Lambda and services like that for. Uh, for serverless, but serverless is really more about your infrastructure graph. Like the amount of code that I need to write for a given application should go, should trend downwards over time until it's literally just my business logic. And even that, you know, when I think about um, lambdas that I write today, where all I'm doing is gluing together uh, AWS services. And then I look at systems manager automation documents where I can, in a declarative way, say, just make this API call and then make this other API call. Um, being able to define uh, the transformations that I need to do in a Lambda function without actually writing any code that has the possibility of going stale, like when all I'm doing is AWS API calls and JSON transformations. Um, writing code for that is kind of uh, an overhead, um, especially operationally. Now it's something else I need to watch. Um, so I'm always on the lookout for how can I move, how can I write less code? How can I do things more declaratively? Um, but I also think, you know, as, as we write less code, then we're bringing in more services to do things. And um, while we're trying to make that easy and 
um, such. We don't have good tools for understanding those things as applications fully um, fully made concrete in, in the cloud. I think you know the AWS CDK is doing work on that front, um, but their take on it is that it's okay for it to be client side for the information about what an application is to get sort of lossily flattened out into a set of cloud resources that then get deployed. Um, and I don't think that lossy step is acceptable. Uh, I think the, you know, the concepts that the developer is expressing in terms of what they're, what they're, um, what they want and, and how they want to represent their applications need to be fully represented cloud side so that what, then when they go and there's something wrong, they can fully trace their understanding of the system through like the AWS console rather than needing some client side tooling uh, that may be specific to a development environment. For example, you know, if someone says, oh, something's going wrong and, you know, the person who designed it was on vacation. Another person shouldn't have to like clone their repo to just get started with trying to fix it. Um, and so that's where I think client side solutions are not the answer. Um, and so I want to see more of that. And I think you know people like Stackery are, are are making progress on that front. On the client side, though, during development, I think we need better tools, better integrated tools from AWS. Uh, you know, so we have the SAM uh, CLI, we have the ECS CLI, um, we have the CloudFormation CLI for doing resource provider development now, and the number of those command lines is only going to explode, and they're all doing very similar things, and it's hard to glue them together. Uh, we have a task right now where we have a step function, and most of it's dealing with lambdas so we're using sam and then we ran into something where it's like well this job is going to run run longer than 15 minutes it's collecting and it's going to need a bunch of uh a bunch of either memory or disk space um and so we can't run it in lambda and so an ecs task is the thing that makes the most sense it's low rate so it's not uh it's you know it's it's not difficult to handle but it's just hard to be like, oh, I'm working in SAM. Now I need to add an ECS task. How do I even develop for that? You know, I can't package up that Docker file and get it into ECR and stitch that ECR image into my uh, into my template in the way that SAM does for zipping files for Lambda. Um, and that makes us want to like resort to using a code build task, which isn't which would would work, um, but isn't the right uh, way to go about it, because it's much easier to just define that inside your template and not deal with all those complexities. Um, and so having a better unified sort of AWS dev uh, command line with like plugins for the services that you might be using that enabled you to set these things up, um, I think might be a, a better way forward um, as people need to stitch more of these different ecosystems together. Yeah, so I think um, those are some of my some of my wish lists. Okay, that's a pretty con a pretty comprehensive uh, list. Oh, I have many more, but I think that covers some of the big items. There's a lot to uh, to unpack there, uh, but I want to maybe go back to the first one you mentioned around the whole uh, writing 
basically writing your your workflow without writing custom code. I know you also you guys you guys use uh, step functions quite heavily as well. I'm a big fan of uh, step functions, oh, yeah. even though I guess the way you can do it is maybe not as nice as uh, say something like uh, uh, Node Red for example from IBM. Uh, where you have that is really great visual tool where you can design your workflow and then you can you can also just switch out to the the sort of YAML or JSON editor view. Um, can you maybe talk about some of the use cases you have with uh, step functions right now and uh, you know, how do you feel about sort of you know, where we're going with, with uh, step functions and uh, you know, what's currently missing there? Yeah, I mean we love step functions. We use it for everything we can. Uh, so any automation process that isn't just a single Lambda is pretty much a step function. And um, we like that we, you know, we do long running jobs that, that, that are iterative using step functions and Lambda. So, you know, uh, just recently we had a task where today there's an SQS queue and a client side script that churns over a large list of items and puts those elements in uh, in an SQS queue for processing. And there's a recent job where that took the developer, it had to run for like an hour on their laptop. And so we're going to move that to be, well, you just put that input file in S3, and then we'll fire off a lamp or we'll fire off a step function based on it that will, you know, keep its place in the file. The file is relatively small. There's just some like parsing and, and API call work that needs to be done for every line. And so we'll do that in the Lambda until it runs out of time, and then we'll just loop back around. And now if it was super easy to set up that ECS task um, or a code build task, we could do it that way. But uh, in general, Lambda for this ends up being easier, easier to manage as a development experience. And so then we just have a little loop that, that keeps a pointer to how far through the, the file it got through. And so we use step functions like that in all sorts of ways. The map state opened up a lot for us. We used to have a lot of parallel states that uh, were pretty cumbersome to deal with to the point where we're thinking about building a CloudFormation macro to help stamp out large parallel states based on a single branch. Um, but then the map state came around and we didn't have to do that. So that was great. Um, but yeah, designing them is hard. Manipulating the state object through all the, the JSON path expressions can be a pain. They're still missing. Uh, you know, we're big into RoboMaker now, and you can't currently, or let's see, let me just double check on this one before I, yeah, we kick it off. We do uh, the, yes. SageMaker works with it, but RoboMaker doesn't. And so we run lots of RoboMaker jobs to run robot simulations so we can do fewer physical tests with, with robots um, for a given you know, uh, pull request, for example. We can, we can run simulated robots and check how well your code works um, based on that. Um, but today there's some Lambda glue to, to help handle that. And we could get rid of that if that was integrated with step functions, things like that. Um, but in general, uh, yeah, it's, it's something that we, we use every day and, and engineer on my team, uh, used to, you know, sort of automate everything as Jenkins scripts. And then when he saw step functions, he was like, oh yes, I can, I can just switch all these things that were in Jenkins to run with step functions. And this is like one less thing I have to deal with. And now he's, he's pretty much our step functions expert.
our foremost expert. We have a bunch of people who are pretty expert in step function. That's really cool. And uh, I've actually done quite a few of that uh, similar thing that, that you just described earlier in terms of uh, using step functions to use uh, to trigger Lambda to process a large S3 file in kind of like a recursive loop. Uh, like I said, just sometimes that's just easier than to spin up a Fargate uh, task because you don't have that trigger. You still have to go through Lambda to trigger your Fargate task and all of that. Yeah, and code build is like kind of a, a an easy out for that because you know you can use a build spec file to to define uh, something to pull in your small snippet of code, um, but it it feels like a workaround. Do you, so what uh, what advice would you give to people who are just looking to start their serverless journey today? Anything that uh, you would you know, that would really help them get started quickly and avoid common mistakes? Well, I think the the most important bit is adopting the serverless mindset, which um, is something you can do even before you can use serverless the, the the technologies that we refer to as serverless. Right? It's it's about wanting to own less technology to deliver uh, customer value better, and so this is sort of you know. Uh, an example I like to cite about this was um, that uh, our administrator who handles uh, Jira came to me, and because we have we have uh, self-hosted Jira, and said, you know, I have trouble. We've got these EC2 instances that we're running Jira on, and they're they're you know free BSD, and uh, no one knows exactly how they're configured and all this stuff. And I'm afraid they're going to fall over and everything's going to start on fire. And so what we looked at was, okay, how do we, how do we set this up to have as little you know, operational burden on that admin so that uh, they could go back to JIRA administration, right? Um, operating the software on it rather than the infrastructure underneath it. So that meant you know, using Amazon Linux 2 and setting them up uh, to be immutable so that uh, if one of them went down, you could just bring another instance up rather than uh, having to configure them. Uh, setting them up with you know RDS rather than a database inside an EC2 instance. All these things are possible, even though you know none of the things that are involved are very serverless themselves. It's applying the same mindset, and so. Even if you're, you know, really interested in like, oh, Lambda looks really useful, but I'm stuck with all this stuff that I have to do. As long as you're thinking about how does this help me deliver value to my customers better, whether your customers are end users or another team in your organization or just other members of your own team, uh, I think that's the the very first step or the best step you can take. The technologies themselves, I think we can see people get bogged down when they haven't adopted that mindset where they're saying, oh, I'm going to, you know, I have lots of lambdas or I have really big lambdas um, because that's the code is familiar to me and I'm applying all of this custom logic in here. And that's where we start to get away from the real value of serverless, which is owning less technology. Do you see serverless as the dominant paradigm in a few years' time, or do you think uh, serverless and containers are going to blend together like Tim Wagner predicted a few years ago? I mean, the way that I think about this, I, I don't know that serverless will be dominant, especially given the rise of Kubernetes in the last couple of years. 
because Kubernetes is allows people, it solves a lot of the current pain points that people have with containers without asking them to rethink the paradigms that they're using. So it presents them with a familiar architecture that's server-based while solving a lot of the operational concerns and architectural concerns that, that people have. And so uh, I think that's delayed serverless adoption by a couple of years because it's enabled people to get to some place where they feel comfortable and feel like things are going better, even though they're missing out on all these uh, substantial benefits from serverless. What I hope to see is if I look at, for example, Fargate and Lambda, what I'd like to see is not Lambda adopt more container-based features. Uh, I don't really want the ability to provide a container image to Lambda. Um, I don't want indefinitely running Lambdas. I don't want hour-long Lambdas. You know, 15 minutes is enough. If you've got to go over 15 minutes, you should be putting it in a container, in, in a ECS task instead. Um, or, you know, and you can't wrap it in a step functions loop, that kind of a thing. Because the longer, there's never a limit to how long you can go where everyone will agree that that limit is enough. You change it to half an hour and someone will say, I need 45 minutes. You change it to 45 minutes and someone says, I need an hour and a half. And then eventually you've got indefinitely running lambdas that uh, can't get cycled out. And the scaling from Lambda gets worse, so it's harder for them to make it cheaper. All of these things come up. So instead, what I'd rather see is more of Lambda's features be brought down to Fargate. So I'd like to see a cloud run-like model in Fargate, where you know it's counting requests and creating new containers based on number of active requests, uh, as well as having like Lambda's event source mappings. So everything that you should that you can use as an event source for Lambda, you should be able to use as an event source for Fargate. And then the difference is relatively minor as to how your compute is running for a given part of your architecture, right? You've got your infrastructure graph and for a given compute node, the rest of the architecture doesn't care whether that's Lambda or Fargate. But what I do want is that you, there is a gap in features between Fargate and Lambda. What I mean by gap in features is that you can't do everything you want to do in Fargate on Lambda. You need to rethink how you write code to use Lambda because if because if there's if the gradient between Fargate and Lambda is too small, then people will move as far uh, in as they're comfortable and stop. And what you really want is that there's a little bit of a hump to enter Lambda that makes you have to rethink a little bit of what you're doing in a way that then you can start to realize the benefits that go by really investing in Lambda and serverless-oriented architecture. Um, and without requiring that little bit of a rethink, I think people won't actually rethink. They'll get as far as they can without rethinking and then just stop. Does that make sense? Yep, absolutely. At some point, you want people to get off the faster horse and get on, get into a car, right? <laughs> yes. 
And I do think that what you mentioned about the Kubernetes and some of this tooling making containerized environments seems a bit better uh, is definitely holding people back, I think, more than they probably realize because Kubernetes is a really complex beast and people don't realize oh, yeah. how much how much cost goes into running and maintaining a Kubernetes cluster. Now, they look at the cost of Lambda being slightly more expensive, but then don't realize that they've got a team of 10 people looking after their Kubernetes cluster. Yep. Um, so in that, with that in mind, uh, are there any other, sort of un, uh, I guess, untapped potentials and use cases that uh, we haven't really seen people explore with uh, serverless and with, and with Lambda? Yeah, I think um, one of the areas that I'm interested in is organizational administration. And I'm interested in this with systems manager automation documents, as an example, um, where if I want to run a piece of code against every account in my organization. That today is not that straightforward. If I want to deploy infrastructure to every account in my organization, I can now do that with CloudFormation stack sets. But then invoking that infrastructure, using it to do something, is, I think, the next step. And simplifying the way in which I can do that, especially in an IAM sense um, or in an S3 sense, you know so that I don't have to push the same code to every region and every account so that it can be accessed by Lambda to get deployed kind of a thing is uh, something that I think is lacking. Uh, I'm really excited about the shift to AWS single sign-on because I think it moves a lot of the complexity of AWS accounts um, and uh, roles mappings from being inside your identity provider to inside an AWS service. But I also don't see, you know, today you can use it with the CLI v2, but you can't use it with Boto 3 or any of the other SDKs because um, they don't recognize where that token that you get from your identity provider or whatever gets stored. You know, they had to sort of revamp some things to make it work for the CLI, and that exists in Boto Core v2 that's not brought into the SDKs yet, which means all the tools that are based around Boto or the other SDKs, like the SAM CLI, um, can't use SSO sign-in yet. I'd love to see that in Amplify, right? So Amplify lets you create um, web apps uh, with a backend very, very simply. And you can add auth and you can say, I want this to be a cognitive user pool or whatever you want your auth to be. If they added AWS single sign-on to that, all of a sudden you'd have uh, teams within the enterprise that could create their own web apps that would be authenticated using uh, the organization's single sign-on um, and uh, fully protected, fully you know, using best practices for all the things that they're building with it. Um, and then they'd be able to create their own applications that much more easily. I think that matters a lot for even just sort of back-end teams that uh, want to put a user interface on the front of their API. Uh, they could do that with Amplify if SSO auth was an option. AWS single sign-on, the service auth was an option. Yeah, I've seen so many te- different teams that build basically their own version of the kind of bridge between some kind of a single sign-on process that kind of integrates uh, with the tooling, with photo, with SDK, so that the developers don't have to, have to constantly copy and pasting credentials into their credentials files and setting up new ones every time the tokens expire. 
um, some, something that comes from AWS and integrates with all these different tooling that already exists from AWS. Yeah, that would be that would be really really helpful. I think they've done a lot of work yes. the last couple of years already around organizations and all of that. Uh, but there's still a constant pain point for a lot of customers and companies that I've worked with in the past as well. Yep, for sure. So I think uh, we already covered a lot of the sort of wish list you have. Is there anything else uh, that you want to sort of mention around so sort of your wish list items? I think we covered. I think the 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 big picture. Yeah, I think we covered quite a lot of them already. Okay, that's great, Ben. Uh, thank you so much for sharing so much of our insights and also potentially what the future holds uh, for us as a serverless community. Again, take it easy and hope that you know, things are not too bad where you are and uh, stay safe. Yeah, thanks again for having me. Okay, take care. Bye bye. That's it for another episode of Real World Serverless. To access the show notes and the transcript, please go to realworldserverless.com. And I'll see you guys next time.